Hi there, my fellow game devs, and welcome to the All Things Unity podcast. My name is Ruben, and I'll be your host. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the 13th episode of the All Things Unity podcast. Last time, we started our discussion about Chapter 2, a pragmatic approach in the book called The Pragmatic Programmer. We talked in-depth about code duplication and orthogonality. Do you still remember what orthogonality means? It means independence or low coupling in a computer science context. For me personally, the most interesting takeaway from the previous episode was that comments are considered duplicate of the code um, when they are on the same level of abstraction. What were your uh, key takeaways from last episode? Let me know at podcast at allthingsunity.com. So in this episode, we will continue chapter two with the topics of reversibility, tracer bullets, domain languages, and estimation. At least that's the goal. I hope we can cover these topics in this episode so we can wrap up chapter two. So let's not waste any more time and dive straight into it. So the next topic to cover is reversibility. But what is reversibility exactly? Well, what Dave and Andrew mean is that your system must be flexible enough so you can reverse or delay decisions as you write your code. This topic has been one of much debate because at some point you have absolutely uh, have to make uh, decisions. You have probably heard the sentence, good software architecture allows you to put, uh, put off big architectural decisions till the last responsible moment. But when is the last responsible moment? Sometimes it can be very useful to make decisions early on. This will reduce complexity or over-engineering or it even might jumpstart development. Imagine that you would write a game but you put off using uh, Unity 3D versus Unreal till the last responsible moment. How much will you effectively get done this way? Maybe some core gameplay or web or database logic, which you compile into some some shared DLLs so you can share them uh, among the game engines. But further than that, not very much, I guess. But there absolutely must be flexibility in your systems so you can reverse on your decisions if you have to. Remember, I explained about the databases we swapped in the previous episode because it became too slow and yet we had an orthogonal system and thus we could, well, rip them out and replace it. Such decisions should be easy to make and if they aren't, your code is not really reversible. And yeah, this is utopia, so you, it is difficult to achieve at some places. So let's see what David and Andrew have to say about it. Well. The first interesting thing they mention is the fact that if you follow their advice of dry, don't repeat yourself, decoupled code, and the use of what they call metadata, then you don't have to make many critical irreversible decisions anyway. This is great since, as we have also learned in the philosophy of software design, you don't always make the best decisions the first time around. Remember Professor Ousterhout's practice of designing it twice? So we don't want to go all in on some technology, yet later to find out we can't hire the right people for the job, or maybe something sinister like vendor lock-in. I know. Now they mention something really coincidental, and I quote, Suppose you decide early in the project to use a relational database from a vendor A. 
Much later, during performance testing, you discover that the database is simply too slow, but that the object database from uh, vendor B is faster. This is the exact thing that I described in the previous episode. They also specifically mentioned the fact that most projects would at this point in time be totally screwed. At about the time frame the book was written, around 2000, so 1999, software was, writ uh, software was often uh, designed with a database-first mentality. So this would have posed a major problem. Well, luckily, people came to their senses and made the database an afterthought, as Uncle Bob would call it. The database is a detail, an I.O. device, not an architectural decision. So what the authors are getting at here is that the mistake many people take is that they assume any decision must be set in stone and never change and does not prepare for any contingencies that might come up. So in software, there can never be final decisions. There is also, there's always fuzziness. They have impact as well as consequences and software evolves and this decision could as well so the idea is to create a flexible architecture which not just includes flexible code but also flexible architecture deployment and vendor integration we've talked a lot about this already in previous episodes and if you follow either uncle bob's or professor outsterhout's advice you will get there my personal taste often orients to some flavor of component-based architecture. All major parts can just be components, so that includes the deployment and vendor uh, products as well. And Andrew and David even go faster as taking the host OS for your application into consideration. Well, fortunately, Unity 3D takes care uh, of that for us. But again, uh, consider the time that it was written. There were no fancy web apps or smartphones, so the concept of what we now call cross-platform development didn't really exist in the modern sense of the word. So try to keep big architectural or structural decisions behind some abstract interface, and try to inject these, let's call them components, automatically. Because if things are added automatically, they can be removed automatically as well. So no manual labor is involved with replacing stuff. And again, this is utopia, I guess. But in essence, the authors are right. But yeah, this will keep your code reversible. And that's about all the authors have to say about reversibility. And the next section is about a concept called tracer bullets. And this has become a very important analogy in the software architecture space since I keep hearing people mentioning it in podcasts, blogs or conference talks. I've described what this means before, <clears throat> but let's quickly repeat. Tracer bullets are special kinds of phosphorus bullets that are loaded into ammo belts. These light up when fired and thus the bad boy firing the machine gun can visually determine where the bullets are landing. This way, he's better able to adjust his aim and hit the target. So how does this relate to software? Well, particularly when you are building something new that has not been built before, like these gunners, you need to be able to see in the dark. Requirements might be vague, algorithms or even the programming languages might be unknown, and maybe there's unfamiliar libraries or so and so forth. And Andrew and David say that the classic response was to specify the project to death. 
which is a reference to the waterfall method, I suppose. However, the pragmatic programmers use tracer bullets to determine the best possible architecture. <coughs> they say that tracer bullets work because they operate in the same environment and under the same constraints as real bullets. And most importantly, they provide immediate feedback. And for a, from a practical point of view, it is also a very cheap solution. So in software, in the software context, we need something that gives the same effect. Something to determine the final system quickly, visibly, and repeatably. So next they tell a story of some client server application they wrote and how they use tracer bullets to determine the architecture. The moral of the story boils down to after prototyping, when you prove that something works or is even remotely possible, you need to create an app that has all the basics ready for development. And this really makes me think about the walking skeleton metaphor from a book called Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Tests by Steve Freeman and Ned Price. This is a really, really great and deeply technical book about test-driven development and as a driver of your software design. And I strongly recommend and encourage you to read it if you're into TDD or simply want to know what the fuss of TDD is all about. But in this book, they mention that it is often very difficult to start right, of the gate, right out of the gate with TDD. Some things are just very hard to test, like bootstrapping your application. So creating a simple app with just one end-to-end -end test that checks if, for example, a button click triggers the right function in your repository class will test all the layers of your system. This way, you have a starting point to develop your, your app, hence the name Walking Skeleton. I really like this approach, and it is one I take very often. And next, Andrew and David mention something really interesting, and I quote, Tracer code is not disposable. You write it for keeps. It contains all the error checking, structuring, documentation, and self-checking that any piece of production code has. It's simply not fully functional. However, once you have achieved an end-to-end -end connection among the components of your system, you can check how close to the target you are and adjust if necessary. And once you are on target, adding functionality is easy." End quote. So yeah, this is exactly what I meant with the walking skeleton approach. But David and Andrew take it a step further by saying that tracer development is never finished. You will always uh, need to add little changes and functions, so it's an incremental approach. And yeah, I fully agree. I think you can make tiny little skeletons as well. So for each new features, you set up the skeleton and then fill in the details. I really like this. So tracer code has a couple of advantages. First of all, it's that users get to see something working uh, relatively early. So it's important in an agile context, since you can adjust your strategy early and accordingly. Plus, users are not disappointed by the lack of functionality. They will only see the potential of what something might become. So it keeps them happy. And another advantage is that developers build themselves a structure to work in. If you have a skeleton for the end-to-end uh, -end, uh, interactions of your system, you have guidelines and uh, design decisions to work from. Developers don't need to come up with all kinds of tricks to connect components by themselves. They just follow the tracer code all the way. 
Now you also have an integration platform since the system is connected end-to-end. -end. You can plug in new code as you see fit or rip things out. But it will also help you to demonstrate functionality to customers or maybe your superiors or something. And I want to mention also here that your skeleton might just be logging to a console to prove it's working. Or maybe just running a bunch of unit tests. And as long as it proves the functionality in an end-to-end -end way, you should be able to quote-unquote sell it as well-deserved progress. And speaking about progress, tracer code is a perfect way to feel like you're going into the right direction. But I think that's pretty clear by now. However, we also need to recognize that not all tracer bullets will hit their target. So you really need to adjust your aim until you are on target. That's the entire point of tracer code. You shouldn't be surprised if you hit some dead ends. You simply use this approach when you are not 100% certain of some design will be sufficient for your problem that you're trying to solve. So when you are off target a bit, adjust. And the great thing about tracer code is that it always starts out small, as simply as a skeleton. But once you are on target, you start filling the details. So adjusting will not take you that much time uh, if done right. And next, they rightly mentioned the difference between tracer code and prototypes. And yeah, this is a valid argument. Tracer bullets are meant to be used for production purposes and explore solutions. Prototyping is to find out if things are even remotely possible. You throw all your decisions out of the win uh, all your disciplines out of the window and hack something together quickly, and you cut major corners just to prove something is feasible. Prototypes are thus often throwaway projects. And I will repeat this because I've made this mistake before. Prototypes are throwaway projects. So if you made a hacky prototype, your managers must understand that you throw it away and start over from scratch, since if you take on the technical depth from the prototype right from the start, it's going to be ver uh, dirty very, very fast. So tracer code really addresses a different kind of problem. You need to know how the application as a whole hangs together. This is a distinct difference. As I said before, tracer code is meant for production purposes, not prototyping. Tracer code is lean, but complete, and serves as a skeleton of your application. Prototypes are a form of reconnaissance, or maybe intelligence gathering, that takes place even before tracer bullets are fired. And that's about really everything they have to say about tracer code. But coincidentally, the next section of the book dives into prototyping. So let's take a look. They start off by saying that many industries use prototype to try out specific ideas since prototyping is much cheaper than full-scale production. Think about SpaceX testing these Raptor engines on the test stands. This is far cheaper than actually firing off a prototype into space. You didn't even know if the engine is going to work, right? I'm really truly amazed by the speed and accuracy SpaceX iterates on actual physical products like their engines, let alone their software. It's really cool to watch, by the way. Another great example is the Formula One. Uh, they use these wind tunnels to check uh, the aerodynamic of their race cars. Imagine if the drivers had to manually test all this stuff on a test track. The process would be very, very sluggish. Nowadays, we can even simulate the aerodynamics before even entering the wind tunnel using software. How awesome is that? So these are just very, two very 
clean and clear practical examples of prototyping. But in software, you use prototypes in the same function and for exactly the same purposes, to analyze and expose risk and to offer chances of correction at a greatly reduced cost. I think this is such a great line by the authors. Another interesting thing about prototypes they mention is the fact that prototypes don't need to be code-based, although they are many times. But they can also just be a couple of post-it notes, or maybe some UML diagrams on a whiteboard, or some wireframing using popular wireframing tools like Figma, for example. And prototypes are designed to answer just a few questions, not all. So you might need to create multiple prototypes before you have all the answers to write a production system. It's really important to focus just on a few questions or answers, maybe even a single one, since it allows you to really focus and narrow down the solution of the prototype and ignore all the dirty hacks. So often, prototypes have poor performance, or they don't have a user interface, or they work without a proper database or web connection. That's all perfectly viable in a prototyping sense. But sometimes, there are just too far, far too many unknowns. And this is when tracer bullets might be a better way to explore it according to the authors. And there are a couple of things you would want to prototype, like architecture or new functionality in an existing system, structure of components of external data, third-party tools or components, or maybe performance issues and user interface design. Just remember that prototyping is a learning experience and thus the value lies in the lessons learned, not in the code produced. I think this is such a great way to describe it. What an awesome line, a prototype to learn. And next, Andrew and David provide some tips on how to build prototype. So what details you might to be able to ignore, for example. Let's start with correctness. And prototypes are often, uh, you often use dummy data where, where appropriate. I use this approach many times when implementing something, uh, but I need to wait for like the backend team, for example, to finish up some endpoints. So we discuss how the data is roughly going to look, and then I mock it all out and start development in the front end in Unity 3D, of course. But also, a prototype can be very incomplete, so don't aim for completeness. I mentioned this before as well, you might need to make multiple prototypes in order to check out viable solutions, all specifically aimed at a sub-problem. This is perfectly fine. You don't have to cover all things in a, sim in a single prototype app if it requires less time where you can simply create two or three apps more quickly. So the next thing to look out for is robustness. Prototypes are by no means robust. Error checking is probably incomplete or maybe missing entirely. Even if you move from the happy path of your application, your app might just crash and burn. So when giving a demo, don't go into contested territory. But this is perfectly fine. This is what prototypes are for. And the last thing is style. The authors say that prototypes probably don't need much documentation or comments. When you are done prototyping, you might document your findings, but that's about it. And describing all of this really drives home the point that prototypes are supposed to be throwaway projects, 
Never should you have to continue development straight from your prototype to production, because the shortcuts, all this technical depth, will at some point in the future slow you down immensely. This is very important uh, to communicate to your managers. They need to understand this, because if they don't, they'll see it as wasted time. But all right, let's continue with the book. And next, Andy and David talk about prototyping architecture. It's nice that they mention this specifically, since architecture is inherently more abstract and maybe difficult to actually prototype. And a prototype that tests a single feature or workflow is a very simple app or even a paper model does not really function properly. But when you are testing architecture, you really need to have something remotely working. How else can you verify the architecture works? So here they provide us, the readers, we, uh, with some questions uh, you could ask yourself. And I'll simply read them. Are the responsibilities of the major components well-designed and appropriate? Are the collaborations between major components well-defined? And is coupling minimized? And can you identify potential sources of duplication? Are interface definitions and constraints acceptable? Does every module have an access path to the data it needs during execution? And does it all uh, does it have access, uh, access when it needs it? And I think uh, these are indeed very good questions to ask. These questions drill deep into the architecture. And as we have learned in clean code and a philosophy of software design, well-defined components with proper collaborations, low coupling and clean interfaces are very important in order to keep complexity creep in check and create a clean code base. And next up is the very last subsection of prototyping, uh, which is called how not to use prototypes. And yeah, this really drives my point home um, of prototypes being disposable. They mention it specifically. Before you embark on any code-based prototyping, make sure that everyone understands that you are writing disposable code. Prototypes can create this illusion with management or customers that there has been a shit ton of progress in just a little while. So the authors offer the solution, and I quote, If you feel there is a strong possibility in your environment or culture that the purpose of prototyping uh, might be misinterpreted, you may be better off using tracer bullets uh, in your approach you'll end up with a solid framework in which the base uh, future of the development on. And again, this is so awesome. I can't really emphasize enough how much I like this uh, explanation, since I've ran into this exact problem many, many times. And I've also made the mistake of taking a prototype through production. So I should have taken Tracer Bullet's approach here. <laughs> but I'll provide you guys with a funny, well, I can now call it for funny, but I give you with a funny example of how prototyping code screwed me over once. So a customer of ours needed something like a 2D RTS game made in Unity 3D. It wasn't a really true real-time uh, RTS game, but more of a uh, like strategy planning tool. So you could set up a map with troops and vehicles and then plan out multiple steps on how to complete some mission. Now, a colleague made a really cool single-player prototype that really showcased some of the basic features uh, of the application. 
It was however my job to continue this project since he got switched to another one. You know, these things happen. That's not really bad or something. So <clears throat> I took the prototype since it was already included in the estimation and throwing it away seemed like more work than refactoring it. But I should have thrown it away because there were some really annoying shortcuts taking in the rendering part of the app. Another fun aspect here is that this application was the supposed to be a multiplayer app and the entire prototype was oriented towards a single player. And everyone who has ever programmed a multiplayer game knows that one does not simply convert a single player game to a multiplayer game. And even more so, this game needed to run on a private network without a main server disconnected from the actual internet. So whoever started a map first became host and the other players could join. And yeah, I also had to build the host migration, which really was a pain in the ass. And host migration is when you have some client that acts as host and for example, three players join him. When the host leaves the game for whatever reason, another player takes over hosting as a responsibility. And remember, I need to build all this in a private network, so no cloud solutions for any of the multiplayer functionalities. So no discovery, no lobbies, no connections, nothing. And the best part of all is, it was estimated to take about two weeks of development. <laughs> yeah, the problem here lied in the fact that the one who estimated it thought that we could use Unity's UNet solutions. But since we had the hard requirement to run it on a private network, which was closed off from the internet without a central server, we couldn't really use any of it, apart from the actual network messaging system. But I really regretted using this since now I had this weird hybrid of custom TCP code and Unity 3D messaging. I should have gone fully custom made, which I eventually, uh, eventually did in later products. Um, so the moral of the story is that I took this prototype, which was oriented towards a single player, which I needed to make a feature complete, plus add this custom networking solution, which was estimated in about two weeks, which took me about four weeks at minimum to build. And in hindsight, the person who built the prototype should have written the production version as well. But because of planning, uh, things were different. Um, and it was a really great learning experience though. And I learned a lot about uh, multiplayer logic. Um, but I won't quickly repeat this. <laughs> so that's all about prototyping. The next topic in the book is about domain languages. We've talked about this in previous episodes as well, since I personally think domain languages are very important. I try to uh, create an ubiquitous language whenever I can. Uh, ever since I read Eric Evans' book uh, about domain-driven design, this has been integrated in my the way I work. I often ask the stakeholders on, of projects to define the words or terminology uh, they use so we can come to consensus about the domain. So I might even ask if the stakeholder could define the word user, for example. But since this book, The Pragmatic Programmer, was written way before the domain-driven design book, this is not exactly what they mean. It comes close, I guess, but what the, the point the authors want to drive home here is more oriented towards domain-specific languages, or DSLs. And a DSL is a language fully oriented around uh, a problem space it wants to solve. A very good example of a DSL is SQL. 
SQL is not a real programming language, but it is a DSL to express queries. And the authors say that languages can limit the way we express uh, and talk about things. This accounts for both natural languages like Dutch, English, or maybe Spanish, but also for formal languages like programming languages. When you try to solve a problem in C-sharp or in Clojure, the end result, uh, result will be far different. And furthermore, certain problems fit better with one programming language than the other. So they say that you might be able to create a mini language to create uh, with your stakeholders or even domain experts. And this seems like a really great idea to me, but one that I've never really actually tried or implemented. And implemented can mean a couple of things here. You could implement a real compiled or interpreted language, but you could as well just uh, use written language on a piece of paper just for the sake of empowering communication. And they also specifically mentioned that these domain languages can be specifically made to configure or control applications. This sounds like such a cool idea to me. And also considering Professor Austerhout's comments about creating config files for system, thus laying the burden of complexity at the seat of the user. If you could combine the two, you might be able to create uh, this DSL and reduce the com uh, complexity just by configuring it. And to add to this, domain language can also be used in error handling or logging. So instead of throwing cryptic.net uh, exceptions, uh, throw exceptions that match the domain, like uh, avatar not found exception, if your 3D character uh, avatar cannot be found. I think Uncle Bob, as well as Professor Austerhout, have talked about this too. Always throw ex uh, exceptions with descriptive messages. And the next couple of subsections involve some examples about how to actually implement such domain language. I won't go too far into detail here, since it involves some syntax and explaining it won't make much sense in a podcast format. But you can get your copy of the book and check it out for yourself. Or you can search around in your favorite search engine on how to make a DSL. I will, however, talk about something very important they mention here and that is the different type of domain languages. They say that it comes down to two types. Either your DSL is a data language or an imperative language. The difference in these languages are the following. With data languages, you often specify, well, data. This data is then interpreted by some code and must often be turned into, you guessed it, uh, some configuration or control. An obvious example I can give here in a Unity context are all the JSON or the YAML files you create. So all your prefabs and scenes and project settings, preferences, animators would fall into this category. Wherever JSON and YAML are widely accepted and really standard forms of a data language. But you could, on the other hand, design your own and use that. Nothing is stopping you to do so. But on the other hand, we also have imperative languages. These types of languages differ from data languages since they not only contain data, but they also contain expressions. These expressions can be executed to control things. Examples of imperative languages uh, is one that you probably write every single day, C-sharp, but also C or C++ or Java. 
In fact, all languages that derive from C are inherently uh, imperative. Yes, I know the la lineage goes back further to Simula or Algol, but I'm gonna leave these out since people probably don't know about them. Um, Andrew and David also mentioned the fact that metaprogramming languages exist. These are again a bit different form of DSL since they serve a very specific purpose. Metaprogramming languages are often designed to use uh, are often designed to use data of an other language to operate on. Uh, I find it quite difficult to explain this, but I can give you uh, an example of uh, metaprogramming I once used in the past. So I've used this metaprogramming language called Rascal. And Rascal is a metaprogramming language with the capability to do code analysis. So with Rascal, you can read in the source code of a project and then extract whatever metric you want to know. So I used it for analyzing the average uh, cyclomatic complexity of a project or the average lines of code per class or the average, uh, average length uh, of lines uh, uh, in the project or maybe the number of classes that make up uh, a component and more. And I even used it to analyze the source code and pick out uh, like the duplica duplicate snippets. It was a lot of fun and it really taught me a lot. And this was all part of a course in university called uh, Software Lifecycle. It took quite some time to get used to the language features and syntax, but in the end it turned out to be pretty cool. You could also create some uh, or generate some really nice visualizations as uh, seen with the, the, the Code City visualizations. I'll make sure to put in uh, uh, a link to both Rascal and Code City in the show notes. And the last thing the authors mention in this section is the fact that with more code comes more maintenance. Yes, this is certainly true. So although DSLs can give you great extensibility and ease of development, they do incur some form of maintenance. And as with any other type of maintenance, you really need to stay on top of this. Uh, one way of keeping maintenance of your DSLs in check is create a simple language, which seems kind of obvious, but still, if the domain language is simple, maintenance will be too. And the last and really interesting topic of this chapter is estimation. And I think I've said this before, but estimation is one of these topics that, however much advice you have consumed, whenever you consume it again, or something new, you always gain new insights. Estimation is such a difficult thing to do, and yet it's such a big part of our jobs. So let's see what David and Andrew have in store for us with this chapter. I can't really remember even. So they start off by saying, Intuitively, we might estimate something is feasible or practical, so we have some sense of what is even remotely possible. But however long such thing might take to build, is still very difficult. So we can use estimation to avoid surprises. And next, they offer some really undervalued piece of advice. And I think I'll just quote this little section directly, so here we go. To some extent, all answers are estimates. It's just that some are more accurate than others. So the first question you have to ask yourself when someone asks you for an estimate is the context in which the answer will be taken. Do they need high accuracy or are they looking for a ballpark figure? End quote. 
And I mean, isn't this great advice? Context indeed plays a very big role in how estimates are made, because if they require high accuracy, it's probably something critically important bound to some business decisions. But if they have enough with a rough estimate, they're probably not betting the company on it. So I think this is really great advice. And a simple example I might, uh, might be if your manager asks you how much uh, install size your Unity 3D app will be. Depending on the context, they might require a different degree of accuracy. If you are deploying, for example, a standalone game for a Windows uh, uh, OS X uh, or Linux, the estimated size might not be really that important. But on the other hand, if you deploy from mobile or WebGL, install sizes start to become more impactful. So a higher degree of accuracy is required. And the authors also mentioned something really interesting in the next part. They claim that the units in which you express your estimates can make people believe you are closer on target. So for example, if you say that something, uh, something takes roughly 30 days to develop, they themselves will translate that into, okay, that's about four weeks, so one month. But they will also think that if things go south, it will be on the measure of days, not maybe a week max. Uh, but if something uh, roughly uh, takes months, then they might think that if things go bad, um, weeks may go by. So estimating in days will provide them with the perception that you have higher accuracy. And next, they also provide a little table with some cool information I would like to include as well. So if you estimate something is about 1 to 15 days, you should uh, speak the scale in a matter of days. And if your estimate is in the range of three to eight weeks, they suggest you speak about weeks. If your estimate is in the order of, 30 to, of eight to 30 weeks, then you speak about months. And if your estimate is on the order of 30 or more weeks, you should think very carefully <laughs> about your estimate. <laughs> An example they provide here is that if you estimate something to be uh, 125 days, which is 25 weeks, you might tell them it's roughly about six months. So choose units of your answer to reflect the accuracy you intend to convey. Really, this is great stuff if you ask me. So where then do estimates come from? All estimates are based on a model of the problem. The authors also provide us with their number one piece of advice in regard to estimation, which is to ask someone else who has already done it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is of course very true, something I do all the time, if there is an opportunity to do so. You can really exploit someone else's past experiences. I don't think this is wrong, this is just good teamwork. So how then do you really estimate? Well, the first part is to build an understanding of what's being asked. You need to understand the context, scope and domain. And often this is implicit in the question of estimating something. So what does that mean exactly? Well, something being explicit is when people expect you to know something based on past knowledge. So this might extend to the uh, context, scope and domain. As with my estimation example about the install size, you probably know whether uh, you are deploying from mobile 
uh, or not. Uh, so you can provide an estimation in the scale of megabytes versus gigabytes, for example. But in uh, the mental model uh, you use to estimate can really differ on the question you are trying to answer. If you are estimating a feature, you might create a mental model of the application, data flow or gameplay, uh, and maybe even the review process in your company. So like uh, the branching model, for example. But if you're estimating on like a project scale, you might want to include formal steps uh, your organization uses for development. So if you need sign-offs by management, for example, uh, if those are generally done at every at the start of every month, you need to account for that in your estimate. And yes, I have seen this stuff happen. I was asked to estimate something, but then having to wait till the end of the year, literally to the end of the year, since that's when all their access budget was being burned uh, on important but urgent things. And the authors also say that model building is creative and can also lead uh, to lots of knowledge in the long term. So when you create a mental model of things, it often leads you to discoveries of underlying uh, patterns or practices. And I think one of the persons who is most widely known for using mental models in his work is Albert Einstein. He famously used his imagination to create mental models about general relativity and uh, quantum physics. But building a model uh, introduces inaccuracies into the estimation process. Simplicity often wins from accuracy in these kinds of models, which can be uh, beneficial, of course. This simplicity can allow you to rethink the model and improve accuracy. Think about Professor Austerhout's advice and practice of designing it twice or more. When you create multiple mental models, maybe with drastically different designs, you can see the trade-offs in things and take the best informed solution. And one way to improve accuracy of your estimate is to break up your model into components. Once you have a model, you can decompose it into smaller, more manageable parts. You could separate it in uh, a model into UI, like gameplay, web, and database logic, for example. Next, you can zoom in on each of these components individually, and maybe even subdivide them more, if you think that will help you in your estimate. A common side effect when dividing a model into components is that each component have parameters. Uh, at least in your mental model, you could assign these parameters. The interesting part of having these parameters is that you can name them and give them a value. So you can then extend your mental model to accommodate for these parameters and see how this affects your model. You will also purposely introduce errors through these parameters. This way you can think about error handling very early in the process. And parameters in, in your game might be the number of enemy units on screen. If you expect multiple thousands, you will be better off taking uh, an approach using the ECS with dots. Uh, but if it's just a couple, a classic game object approach might be sufficient. Oh yeah, um, by the way, uh, at Unite this year, just a couple of weeks ago, it has been announced that dots and ECS will be integrated in the 2023 Unity 3D engine by default and is no longer in its preview stage. 
but we will come back to the topic of dots in a later episode, I think. What I will do uh, is put this really pragmatic, well, pun intended, video in the show notes where some dude on YouTube shows you how to use the latest uh, stable version. I checked it out a while ago and I have to say the design of dots has finally, finally looks usable. It has, it has had many generations and I just couldn't be bothered using it since it changed too much. So by assigning the parameter of units on the screen uh, with a number, we quickly determined uh, it's either going to be a dots approach or a classic game object one. Now, since with many of us dots is new, our estimation will go up. But we are not so sure uh, because it's unknown territory. And in this case, we need to drill down further and estimate uh, each step. So what behavior do these units need to have? And how about rendering? And do the units have behavior that is incompatible with dots, uh, with dot systems approach? And going totally mad, uh, could a compute shader maybe be an alternative? And compute shaders are uh, special kinds of program with programs with an shader code to exploit the concurrency of the GPU just to do calculations. So these shaders are not used for rendering, but purely calculating things. So they can be really cool and very useful, useful but use cases uh, are very limited. But to get back to the book again, the next step the authors give is the idea to keep track of your own or your team's estimations. Um, make sure you write them down uh, so you can check afterwards uh, how close you were. This allows you to hone in on the skill of estimating things. And yes, after a while you will become more comfortable with, your, uh, with estimation. And well, let me tell you this, uh, that is easier said than done. What I've come to realize, realize is that I sometimes overestimate to just cover my ass. This is not on purpose, but I'm often dealing with lots of uncertainty, plus some bad experiences in the past of uh, ten. Well, they tend to add those extra hours or days or weeks to an estimate. I'd rather be safe than sorry. But I'll always try to communicate this in, uh, uncertainty with the person, person asking for the estimate. And next, they provide us with some more interesting tips. They say that the best way to find a uh, timetable of a project is to actively work on it. This sounds like a paradox, they say. And well, I agree. But what they mean is that you work iteratively on a project. You can adjust and fine-tune estimates as you go. The estimate will be more clear as a project progresses, and thus you are in a far better position to answer questions about requirements, risk analysis, and design and integration. And the very last tip they give in the book is what the, they say is the best answer to give when someone is asking for an estimate. And I'll quote, I will get back to you, end quote. <laughs> and I, I mean, they are totally right. This will allow you to yeah, give you some space to breathe and give you some time to think about it. But remember the communication advice from chapter one. If you tell someone to get back to him or her, you really have to do that. So that's it for chapter two of the Pragmatic Programmer. And before we stop, I do want to mention one last thing about estimation, 
which is about some really great advice Uncle Bob provides in one of his keynotes at the Yao of Yao conference. I don't know Yao Yao conference. I've listened to this talk far too many times, but it's just so good. Uh, in this talk, Uncle Bob talks about his strategy for doing estimates. And he also mentions work breakdown structures, just as we have talked about in this episode. But he has a specific formula that provides an, uh, on how to provide an estimate. The key here is to never, ever give a concrete date. Always provide a range of dates. His strategy is to give the best case scenario, which has like a 95 chance of succeeding, 95% chance of succeeding. Uh, and the worst case scenario, which has like a 95% chance of failing. And then the normal case scenario, which has like a 50-50 chance of succeeding. This will give you uh, with a range uh, of like a best case, five days, normal case, eight days, and the worst case, 14 days. This curve can then be communicated to management. So they can actually do their work they were hired for. Management, right? This strategy is called PERT, P-E-R-T, which stands for three-point estimation technique. I really recommend you check out this talk on YouTube. It's a lot of fun and you will definitely learn about estimations. Also, if I remember correctly, there is like an entire section dedicated in Uncle Bob's Clean Coder book, not Clean Code, it's called the Clean Coder, uh, about this subject as well. I'll put all of this stuff in the show notes, so don't worry. So, I hope you enjoyed the second half of chapter 2 of the book, The Pragmatic Programmer. So let me know what you think about the book so far by sending me an email at a podcast at allthingsunity.com. And also, don't forget to leave me a review on your favorite podcasting platform, or maybe rate it by a nice 5-star rating. Um, thank you for listening, uh, see you next time, and remember... With Unity, we can do great things. Game over.